You're listening to Errol Parker and Clancy Overall, editors of the Batuta Advocate on Desert Rock FM. Welcome back to the Batuta Advocate radio show, recording live here in downtown Batuta. Now we've uh, we've been lucky enough to interview a few icons uh, over the over the last couple of months, particularly icons of the bush. We had Ian Moss on a couple of weeks ago. I guess you could call him an icon of the bush. He comes from Alice Springs, which is basically where the the outback turns into the west. And uh, and then of course we had Troy Casadale, good Grafton lad, on the uh, on the podcast as well. But Queensland is particularly well known for for a lot of things. Uh, we we have Qantas was founded out in Longreach. Labor Party was founded in Barcolden, but they'll claim it in Balmain. And yep. uh, and the Jackie Howe was born in Blackhall. Yep, yep. The Blue Singlet, and of course Darren Lockyer from Roma. But aeronautical kind of aviation has been a big part of the bush for many years, um, because it's always been ever since planes were flying. It's been one of the ways to get around everyone out there has a cousin or a, or a brother who has his chopper pilot's license and everyone knows someone who has a light aircraft today's guest knows a lot of those kind of blokes uh we have the chief executive officer of the royal flying doctor service here with us today greg sam thank you for joining us mate g'day gents it's great to be back in the diamond tina well it's i mean you get around a lot the people who work with you get around a lot as well What's happening with the Royal Flying Doctor Service at the moment with these borders up and up and down? Well, it's been interesting uh, that the moment that COVID started to hit, we saw two things happen. One was a lot of the health system started to shut down, particularly the non-emergency activity. So, so a lot of elective surgery around the country really came to a sudden halt. And 12 months ago, we were thinking we were going to have to keep hundreds and if not thousands of beds available with uh, ventilators and uh, uh, intensive care capability around the country. So a lot of that was designed to rapidly give us that capacity to respond if those nasty waves of COVID hit. Um, So that really created a couple of issues uh, in terms of flying as well. It's underestimated just how many people from the cities actually work in the health system outside of you know the bigger regional and metro centres. So in addition to us providing our own clinics and retrieval services, we also help move people around the health system, healthcare workers. So State to state? Uh, state to state, across borders in particular, and, and particularly where you're looking at rural and remote locations, people tend to move pretty closely around the borders. So uh, the, the impact on us was that we actually overall didn't stop flying as much. The borders did cause a few problems and uh, a bit of paperwork was required from time to time, but probably the biggest issue was just the inability to move staff across borders. Yeah. But look, that's started to improve now, of course, and uh, we're sort of screaming into the the vaccination era. So not a lot of people would realise, though, is that you know there are millions of people who walk around this country every day with a twenty dollar note in their back pocket, and not a lot of people would know the story behind the people on those notes, or they, they wouldn't even know their names, most of them. So can you tell us a little bit about John Flynn, um, who was the founder of the Flying Doctor, and he's on the twenty dollar note. He is, and uh, he managed. I'd learnt that the the RBA every few years reviews who they uh, they feature, and uh, 
the Reverend Flynn managed to get another another Guernsey. <laughs> another start. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, as, uh, as no doubt that space is uh, hotly contested. But John Flynn really came of age at the beginning of the, the 20th century. So he was born in the late 1800s. His desire was to become a Presbyterian minister and he started his ministry and through that era uh, spent a lot of time uh, initially working up in uh, far north and south Australia and into the Territory. Part of his mission brief was to conduct some evaluation of life in remote areas and in particular uh, those areas that were now being settled for large pastoral holdings and where small communities were starting up around uh, mining activity. So not a lot of work going on above the ground, but a bit starting to scratch below. He basically came back and told the church, look, uh, the biggest problem out there, in fact, was the threat to women and children, uh, and that he'd recommended that they would start to put some remote nursing stations in. And being a, a, a faith-based uh, mission, they also wanted to minister to the, uh, the spiritual side of people's lives uh, remotely. And it was inevitable also that a lot of those early uh, mission and nursing camps started to provide some care for the local Aboriginal populations. On the back of that experience, um, he then got more money to expand and, and that really got him through to the beginning of the First World War. Uh, and it was through that era that that really his interest in both communications and and moving around enabled him to start to talk to people about the value of both uh, wireless radio that had started to come of age through the first world war uh, but also this sort of new transport medium of flying and, and aviation and in fact australia's contribution to that in the first world war is quite significant and it was a, a world war one pilot by the name of clifford peel who wrote to Flynn and said, look, you know, you guys are wandering around the back uh, with camels and horses and really you're limited in how effective you can be and have you thought about the possibility that that air travel might bring. So he spent basically the next 10 years trying to pull all that together and, uh, Clancy, as you mentioned, the first real flying doctor flight was out of Cloncurry Mm. in 1928 and that was an old... uh, to Haviland D-50 aircraft that Qantas actually yeah. owned them. All oh, right. I uh, thought Sir Sidney, Kid, Sidney Kibben might have uh, donated that plane to them as well, like he did for the World War One <laughs> aircraft. No, but, uh, and I understand, like, they charged them something like two shillings a, a mile to, yeah, right. to fly up. So that, that was the, really the first flying doctor service uh, out, of, out of Queensland, as you said. And then from there, Flynn basically took it beyond the remit of the Presbyterian Church and sought government intervention to try to expand the service nationally in different states, as they then were. And then, you know, for the next 20 years, increasingly more and more states bought into it and the service expanded. And then um, he died in 1951, I think. Yeah. Uh, And um, from there, it just went from strength to strength, Largely because the communities were the ones who took it over. So where a base, or what he called them, ports were established in the states and those communities at that time, they really hung on to it for dear life and helped convince government to keep it going. So overall, after he died, it became sort of the non-government 
organisation supported by government, owned by communities and uh, supported by communities. And where would your strongest ports be nowadays? I know Broken Hill's got a bunch of young doctors running around town. Yes, indeed. There, there are... I think we've still got uh, a great network of inland bases. So certainly around here, you've got you know some great bases for Cloncurry and uh, Mount Isa and Longreach, Broken Hill and Dubbo mm-hmm. further south, and then uh, you swing around to Alice Springs. And then every capital city also has a major base because if now with the the speed of air travel, we can pick you up anywhere in the country within two hours and get you to a tertiary hospital if need be. Anywhere in the country? Anywhere in the country. So there's yeah, 21 right. bases yep. of, of which certainly every uh, coastal city has uh, a major retrieval base uh, or supports the uh, the state air ambulance service and then there's a, a number of regional bases as well. As a non-for-profit group, that doesn't make you essentially beholden to what the government tells you what to kind of do each day as a government department. So what's the basic structure of the Royal Flying Doctor Service, like most of the money would come through the government or through donations? Yeah, it's uh, it, it's structured as a federation. So there's yeah. sort of seven independent organisations that, that what Flynn called the, the many heads, one heart concept. Yeah. Yeah. So as a federation, uh, we, we basically, our traditional services, I guess most of what most people would recognise us for, which is the remote retrievals and clinics, telehealth and the the, the the super first aid kits that we have all around the country. Yeah. That's funded by the Commonwealth because uh, in terms of the way that the states and Commonwealth negotiate health responsibility, remote health is the Commonwealth's responsibility. So that's about a third of our funding overall. Uh, yeah. And that, as I said, covers the primary evacuation retrievals and uh, the clinics. Another third is from state government work, and that's where we move people and patients between hospitals. So yeah. if you've got someone who's in a, a smaller rural hospital and they need to be moved, we will undertake that work on behalf of the state. And then uh, the other third is from uh, from public donations. And, you know, it's a, it's a very strongly supported brand. We had the value of, you know, kids growing up with social studies learning about Flynn, the $20 note, you know, the TV series in the 80s yeah. that uh, not only sort of made the brand in Australia, but it also established the brand overseas. And we've got um, both a UK and a German group who still support us. We, we spoke to uh, Pastor John Owen from Wayside Chapel on the podcast a few months back, and uh, he was giving us the rundown on the, on the way they do, like on how they do things down there in the cross. And he also, you know, gave us the rundown on how, you know, there is a, a like a, a patron, a patronage to what they do. And there's been some big supporters, a lot of philanthropy that's kind of helped them get to where they are. I imagine it's the same. Were there any kind of, you know, uh, you know, iconic donors in the in the in the, you know, yesteryear, the golden age of uh, of the bush before the wool crash? Who was uh, who who was uh, tipping in the most? You reckon? So Sydney. Well, I, I think anyone who's got a uh, a commercial interest yeah. in operating in in remote Australia today, even yeah. and as I say, whether that's above the ground or below the ground, often part of the proposition that they have for their workforce, and increasingly it's all FIFO. Yeah, 
So if you want to, you know, operate that type of business model and workforce model, the fact that you've got access to 24-7 emergency support from the RFDS clearly is a uh, is of value. Yeah. Uh, and so there is a lot of commercial and corporate sponsorship for us, particularly quite specific in those areas where that's the type of support and service we provide. Similarly, with increasingly now, a lot of donors don't want to just fund the brand, they want to fund and see what we do with it. And so a lot of that now is directed towards specific services. And over the past probably five years where we've had that prolonged drought period and then a series of natural disasters leading into COVID uh, and then, you know, the big rain of 2020, (laughs) that mental health and, I guess, more chronic disease has been a, a major area that uh, the service has been able to grow into because people actually recognise that now as as much as people falling off horses or uh, uh, coming yeah. out of ultralights and yeah. uh, falling off the back of uh, some circle work at a yeah. PNS. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you you you'd, you would have had everything in the back of one of the, your planes, I'm guessing. Uh, who was the most high-profile... I guess uh, passenger. Would you say? Did you ever get a Prince Philip or a or a Kerry Packer? <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I think it, we've had a few high profile people in the back of the aircraft, uh, not necessarily supine and hooked up to a <laughs> yeah a monitor. Yeah. Uh, so so we like to get them in there and show them what is there, and yeah. hopefully that they're not going to get a ride. But it's interesting the number of families, and particularly those intergenerational families, mm. the, the big uh, landholders, who have a relationship where, you know, dozens of their family have used the service. Yeah. So there are a few frequent flyers, it's fair to say. <laughs> and, you know, again, around major events where you get a lot of influx of people. races. And, That's yeah. right. So it's not just the locals that, yeah. that we look after. And particularly, we're expecting... Um, with COVID now, as borders increase and international travels off, the the number of people that are moving around. Oh, there'd be a lot of that, a lot of grey nomads that run out of water yeah. halfway across the Nullarbor. <laughs> that's right. Who, or know, insulin. Who, <laughs> or fuel. Who, who want to put a, a bull bar on the Brumby and uh, yeah, yeah. take it across the Streslecky. <laughs> yeah. That was that was a big one. I remember when the um, when Victoria was open to Queensland, but not New South Wales. And some of these grey nomads just having a crack going through Haddon's Corner straight into South Australia. You know, they've on the Gold Coast. They needed to get back to Turak, so they went via Birdsville. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, no, yeah, there was a lot of people caught yeah, on the old dirt tracks that way, down, down the guts, I guess. So, yeah, the, and a lot, of our, a lot of our patients, a lot of our passengers and clients sort of fall into that category of people who really aren't familiar with how to navigate and yeah. uh, survive and those who have been there for a long, long time and basically you know when they ask for help that they, they really need it. And yeah. it's those characters that you come across, you know, very regularly, you know, the yeah. people that pull their own teeth out and uh, <laughs> cauterise their own uh, you know, amputations yeah. and <laughs> that sort of stuff that still goes on. Not, not as much, though, I might add. So in America, they've got, you know, as everyone knows, thanks to, to the movie, the Top Gun School. That's usually the um, the benchmark for, you know, your, your best pilots. Where in this country, if someone says, you know, I'm 
a pilot with the Royal Flying Doctor Service. That's usually as good as a pilot you can be in this country. So well, what does a flying doctor look for in their pilots? I mean, do most of them have a, like an ex-military background? or? I think historically, I mean, you mentioned the fact that a lot of rural people actually, it's their, their mode of transport. Uh, and a lot of their kids, when they go away to uh, boarding school, actually learn. Yeah. how to fly so that they can then uh, come back to the, the property. So there's elements of people who have that capability and then skill up to meet our requirements. And it's fair to say that in the main, the Flying Doctor Service flies in uncontrolled airspace. And in the main, we only uh, generally have one pilot in the cockpit. So we do require a high degree of experience. And aviation now across the country, like most things, is becoming more regulated. So the idea of the barnstorming and, uh, you know, I'll get out of bed on a Sunday and have a crack at it for you, those days are are gone. So we have to operate under the same rules as if we were running sort of a passenger service. So that flows through to our, our pilot requirements around training and experience. In the, in the 60s, you kind of moved away from contractors. Would have been a few cowboys getting around there, a couple of, um, I guess you'd say, musters of the air. A few crop dusters and uh, <laughs> a few, a few, uh, yeah, few longhorn musters. That's true. But I, I think they're now, I mean... Aviation, and particularly for that type of flying, it's uh, quite a fluctuating industry. So when COVID hit and the major airlines just shut up overnight, like yeah. literally, the phone rang off into yeah. RFDS of people saying, hey, can I come and fly with you? Yeah. And unfortunately, it's not as simple as saying just, you know, move from the column to the, the yeah. floor shift. <laughs> yeah. So the lag to take advantage of that takes some time. But across the country now... Uh, our Western Australian operations and our Central Northern Territory operations have, have got jets mm-hmm. in their fleet, uh, PC-24s, and on the East Coast they're largely uh, King Air twin engines. So they're a particular platform that you know, appeal to a particular type of pilot. But generally, the type of, back to your question, the type of people that want to come and work for us, a lot of it is just that ability to have long periods of what I would call you know, not terribly exciting flying or waiting interspersed with the ability to act in an emergency and be part of that emergency response. So we seek our pilots to be part of the response team as much as just sit up the front of the cockpit. I I guess the question I want to ask now is how for those kind of people, you know, there's a lot of domestic tourism taking place right across Australia right now. How would someone, something happens, they know they need to go to a hospital and they need to go quick. How would they call the flying doctor? Is there a triple zero, like, you want a direct kind of uh, transfer? Look, those in the know generally can contact us in a number of ways, and that's part of the relationship we have with people that live there. That's quite specific. So at at times it can be, you know, having that communication line to a... The closest base. Yeah, well, the homestead uh, has a button. They know how to get you. That's yeah. right, and 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 you know there's still uh, other forms of communication beyond uh, telephones and uh, you know, UHF and and radio can still find us in a number of areas. Generally, 
any emergency response now is coordinated and integrated. So if you ring triple O or you you know dial a, a an emergency number, depending on where you are, and in most cases you'll be directed pretty quickly to the RFDS. So, and and that's been you know part of us trying to improve that, uh, particularly given the the type of travel. So we spend a fair bit of time marketing through the grey nomads to make sure that you know they know how to find us if they uh, if they roll the Viscount. <laughs> <laughs> if they hit a big red, that's right. Get a leg through the windscreen. That's right. Which should happen a lot <laughs> if they acquire a uh, an errant emu. <laughs> it's not, but it's not all outback, is it? No. What are the, some of the coastal deserts you're landing in there? Well, well, the issue is. What's the care you need and, and where's the place best place to get it? Yeah. So, again, we have to sort of integrate on the East Coast with the change to the health system where you've got emergency road vehicles, you've got helicopters, you've got non-emergency road vehicles, and then you've got fixed-wing aircraft. That, so that all ties in nicely as to how the state manages all its emergency responses. Um, and so that will mean we could pick you up from an accident, retrieve you to a first level of hospital that will stabilise you, keep you alive, and then probably then move you to a, another hospital in a big regional centre or a capital city. Or in some cases, we'll just pick you up in the middle of the desert and take you straight to your capital city for that yeah. type of care. In the meantime, the fit-outs in the aircraft and road vehicles are such that your chances of survival, uh, our aim is to make it exactly the same as if you were picked up in an ambulance uh, you know, in Brisbane or Sydney or, yep. or Melbourne. So the other issue is that we now can take you bed to bed. So we uh, operate often a, a series of road fleets and road vehicles and road ambulances so yep. that we don't have to rely on you know, synchronising with ambulance services for each of our retrievals or our patient movement. So uh, a lot of that occurs in the city. So you'll see RFDS increasingly, you know, in the capital cities. We fundraise in the capital cities because back to that issue of the brand and the fact that, you know, kids don't routinely learn about uh, Flynn or the Outback now in social yep. studies. <laughs> and not as many people carry, you know, $20 bills around. Mm-hmm. So we keep that marketing now, particularly through social media, and we try to keep that whole um, outback relationship in in front of people's minds. And uh, I mean, the other issue is that uh, we're expecting the the new TV series to uh, be aired before the end of the year, which would be nice. So in your experience, where are some of the shortfalls, like in terms of regional health? Are they on really like a base hospital level or are they more or less, you know, just across the board where you've got people in regional and remote parts of Australia are just worse off? Look, it's a really difficult problem. And I think without, you know, making excuses to the fact that most problems can be improved if not resolved. But in terms of regional Australia, and as you know, there's a lot of discussion currently about the quality of care that that is accessible. And often it's not that the care you get is of substandard. So once you're in the system and once you're picked up by it, generally the level of care you get is very good. Uh, And you can get poor care in uh, tertiary hospitals in capital cities. Part of the challenge is that the type of care you need, 
whether that's through your GP or your community level care through to acute hospital-based care, isn't you don't have those resources available to you. So how you access the service is often the problem and the lack of access is the problem. Yeah. So solving that, it'd be nice to say, look, if you just wrote a big enough cheque that that would enable us to have hospitals on every corner and uh, chemists and GPs. And that's not the case. And in, often this is a, a, a supply challenge as much as a demand challenge. As a service, we continue to have to work very hard at getting people to want to come and work and live in rural and remote communities. The nature of the workforce has changed across the board in healthcare as well. So what once was a vocation, you know, where you'd qualify, you'd move to a country town and you'd yeah. marry the farmer's son or daughter and uh, uh, stay around for a generation and support the school and support. Those days are evaporating quickly. So most career professionals now want to work differently. They want to come, they want to work at the top of their profession yeah. and they want to stay for a, a shorter time and a better time rather than that commitment. And just the cost of providing that level of access and fidelity of care is you know, very, very expensive. So the, the short answer is yes, more money needs to be spent to improve both the, the conditions for healthcare workers to want to come and base themselves in remote areas. The, the other issue is as well that the, the way of, that people expect to receive their care is changing. Technology now is giving us a lot more access to people and COVID has been great in, I think, forcing both um, patients and healthcare providers to get better at that type of remote consultation, which is something, you know, RFDS really started with back, yeah. you know, with pedal radios and, and, and Morse code. But na- now... <laughs> Where does it hurt? <laughs> do, 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 do. That's right. Well, the, there's that, that famous story of, uh, you know, Jimmy Darcy who... I mean, this was before Flynn became involved, but it, it sort of focused the fact that he uh, had a horse accident and uh, that, that literally they were trying to Morse code instruction through <laughs> to save his life. And then in the end, they saved his life and he subsequently died of malaria, as it, <laughs> as it turned out. But, but that's right. Um, but the point really around regional health, I think, is that People now demand to have the full range of and access to services, and the challenge is how do you you know put it at their doorstep and make it affordable? And yeah. you know that technology is going to help, and certainly the amount of patient contact we have via a screen now has increased. So probably the biggest thing that'll help regional health is better infrastructure, so better roads better NBN coverage, you know, better communication access. And then we can overlay health technology with that. But, you know, we have people that still, you know, don't have reliable electricity, let alone a, a yeah. passable road or uh, a mobile phone tower. And that's the stuff we deal with. I think in closer to smaller country towns and regional areas, it's more that the model of healthcare where you had a number of GPs in town who could see you through the day and then see you at the hospital and take your tonsils out and deliver your baby, that model is changing quickly now. What do you think the um, centralisation of the Australian population is a result of? Uh, there's many arguments that you know mining companies now don't really depend on the 
on a township, they would depend on FIFO workers. Back once upon a time, you look at towns like Blackwater and and Emerald. They had they even had a union for the miners' wives, and they you know they had the the, the company would be expected to seal roads and build schools and that kind of stuff. And 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 of course, state governments would tip in too because that's where the jobs were. Nowadays, there's a lot more FIFO, not just in the resources sector, but outside of that, there is some sort of kind of I wouldn't say brain drain. I'd just say drain from the towns where the uh, the you, you mentioned it before. You know, people do their prac, fall in love, and stay. What well, what is it? Do you think? Do you think it is a culture of convenience? I, I think it's a it's a culture of comfort, really, yeah. I, and I think. The, the necessity has also changed in terms of you know, what are people's options who want to live and work and stay in those types of communities. And, and ultimately, you know, technology, the way that agriculture and mining has moved, certainly has changed the way that those communities can self-sustain so that you can be born there, have a job for life, mm-hmm. get married there and... Uh, and, and breed the next generation it still can happen but it's increasingly rare and a lot of that is around the fact that i think that opportunity now outside of those communities relatively speaking you know draws you into regional areas or the city but what we do see increasingly is just the impact of the environmental issues and uh you know water for example which you know, fortunately, has been off the off the table for a little while. But that is a major determinant of the viability of those communities. Um, you know, access to energy is a major issue of the viability of those communities. So, when we see these sort of major national discussions on that type of infrastructure, those smaller communities that rely heavily upon it are the ones who are generally the you know the first to be impacted mm-hmm. positively and negatively. So you'll see where industry comes back into a location, those small communities fire up very quickly. And you can take a town like Cobar in uh, northwestern New South Wales and see that just the the ebb and flow of that sector can rise and decline your population by 20 to 50% over a period of time. Yeah. So that's very hard to know if I'm a doctor or whether I want to go and set up in a, a town of 5,000 or 10,000 people <laughs> and commit there for life and buy a house. Because 10,000 could be 5,000 in a couple of years. And and also, you know, the idea of uh, I, I want to, again, I want to practice rural medicine, but I want to have uh, a lifestyle in the metropolitan area. So increasingly, you know, the system is trying to adapt to that and... Hence, uh, the health service has a has a large FIFO dependency as well. Well, I read in the newspaper the other day that they've just started to do uh, daily flights between Cobar and Sydney and Cobar and Brisbane. So um, if you're a young doctor who's uh, tossing up whether to go to Cobar, there's another reason for you to go. That's right. And, and I heard today that the last 12 months through COVID, I think the net migration into regional and rural was something like 250,000 people in the last 12 months. Now, that no doubt will spread quite diffusely, but some communities, particularly those regional communities that have infrastructure on education and communication, that's what attracts people because they can live and work there and uh, they don't have that, that commuting issue that generally has been the biggest problem.
We on this podcast, we have the year of many politicians. We've had John Barillaro, Deputy Premier of New South Wales, on here. We've had uh, We've had the Deputy uh, Premier of Queensland, Jackie Tread. Yeah, we had we had, uh, we had the leader of the opposition, Albanese, on here. Uh, we, you know, they're listening, right? What are some uh, issues facing your organisation politically? Um, and I know you know everyone wants to stay on the good side of both sides, hedge your bets. But what <laughs> what w- what are some of the issues that you can speak to that you know might help? how you do things. Again, without sounding too apologetic for it, we're one of those services where both sides of politics understand the value of being supportive and being seen to be supportive of what we do. Because yeah. fundamentally, uh, from a rural perspective, it doesn't matter what your constituency is or what side of politics you sit. Yeah. Those communities are our biggest advocates, so we'd let a lot of that be done at, at that level. Yeah. I, I think we've seen a lot of investment to try to upgrade infrastructure, and we think that's probably the biggest assistance. Anything that, that enables better access by communities enables us to provide more and better levels of health care. So often it's not saying, look, we're rent-seeking and the cap's out and give us more money, mm-hmm. but... And the that always dep- helps. The, yeah. Well, uh, and can I say that you know the deputy prime minister is a very big, big fan and supporter of yep. of us, and uh, and certainly there are a number of members of parliament on, on all sides of the house who have RFDS bases and a lot of staff that they look after. But I think the key is we're trying to bang the drum around this inequity still that says your life expectancy is still largely determined by your postcode. Yep. And I think, as I said, they are wicked problems. They're not easy to fix. But I think using organisations like us, the NGO sector, to have that relationship with communities, that longer-term commitment, and I think if there was one thing that we could say that that type of long-term planning to have us at the table will, will make a big difference rather than the you know the challenge we have as with many other government-funded entities that you're sort of subject to the rise and fall of the uh, of the election cycle and, and budget cycles. What what are some of the preventable emergencies that you see? I mean, a lot of emergencies are preventable, but in terms of preventable illness, uh, what what are some of those uh, that you, you see in your in your uh, vehicles and your and your aircraft? Look, they fall into two categories. Like the yeah. the, the standard fare of uh, trauma and accidents. You, you know, farmers and miners and explorers can find many ways to injure themselves you know and whether it's augers uh, quad bikes or rogue animals uh, the the other major problem is wildlife and and not that that's a problem (laughs) in and of itself but the fact that people collide with them and Mm -hmm. they collide with people causes a lot of accidents on the roads probably the biggest uh, emerging risk is people with poorly treated, poorly managed chronic disease. Yeah, so yeah. the fact that the ageing workforce rurally you know, are having more and more heart disease and more and more diabetes. And as I said, in the last few years, in my experience, we've just seen this explosion in mental health needs and, and it being discussed more and more, which is something that's also changed, I think. Do you think that explosion of mental health needs could be a result of destigmatisation in the bush? People actually saying, you know, this is something I need to talk to a professional about. Yeah, it, it and like most good movements, it sort of started locally and it was a 
people starting to have conversations with themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think as that became a little more saleable, then the ability to start to, to advocate about it. And I think everyone saw the impact of that prolonged drought, that prolonged uh, drop-off in economics of small communities yeah. and where it really hit home. And, you know, we support a number of those programs that just work at the farm gate. You know, yeah. there, there literally are people who, uh, some of our uh, mental health workers who will just sit in the ute with someone and have a chat, you know. A- and a service like ours is quite non-threatening for people. Mm-hmm. So we try and have a lot of presence at things like machinery field days and shows and yep. people will just come up for a chat. And a lot of trust. And it's that idea of how do you sort of turn a conversation about the weather into... Uh, a conversation about you know, somebody's mental health need, and you know that's something that that our service does very well. Well, just on chronic illnesses, like um, as you were saying, there are a lot of people who you know have these chronic illnesses where the first time they ever meet the flying doctor is after they've had a heart attack in the sheep yards when they're drafting the weathers. Um, what's the RFS doing to really you know change you know how these things? Uh, kind of viewed in in the bush like you could build a hospital in Dubbo that you know would be the envy of every person in Denmark but you're just not going to get the farmer there you know but like what's the RFS kind of doing to change the attitudes of these farmers you know all these people in in regional Australia it's the same challenge anywhere but particularly with people in the bush who have traditionally been the the unwary unworried you know, unwell. The short answer is there are things you can do from a secondary point of view that actually improves people's fitness and wellness without saying you've got to cut out the meat and uh, you know ride the push bike around the boundary uh, ten times a day. <laughs> and fundamentally, often that's about just better medication management. For example, helping people manage, self-manage. So take taking their blood pressure. So it's about recognising the fact you're not going to get people easily to stop smoking, to easily lose weight and easily change their diet. I mean, you could imagine the idea of, you know, getting Uber Eats delivered in Thargaminda is not, you know, an option for people no. or cutting out access to, to meat. No. But what you can do is work with people to identify where improvements can be made and a lot of that often is about making small changes that does have a significant difference. And it is intergenerational as well. So, you know, the younger guys and girls that are managing and operating and working in those communities do actually have a higher degree of interest in being healthier and and well. And our job is to really put the information there and the support there for people who want it, but not to shove it down their throat. But having said that, a few weeks ago, I uh, got to go to a remote clinic and... Uh, one of the locals there pulled me aside and he said, oh, there's a guy here who wants to talk to you. He's he's upset. You know, he's been donating 20 bucks, you know, a year for the last 30 years and he wants to give you a pull through over something. So I went and found this guy and he was in the pub, literally go and find him in the pub and he was having his counter meal and he said, uh, I've just been to the applying doctor clinic and uh, he... Uh, gave me a dressing down over the fact that I was overweight and my diabetes is out of control and my blood pressure's through the roof. And, <laughs> and he tried to print off a, uh, 
a diet sheet for me and uh, the printer didn't work and he told me that you blokes, you know, he's had an order in for a new printer for you know, three months. And I said, right, we'll, we'll get onto that uh, for you. And so he did and he said, look, just to show you the problem, he said, I can show you exactly. And he gave me a bit of paper and this was a diet sheet that had been caught up, you know, literally trapped yep. in the bloody printer. And when he unwrapped it, it was, you know, here is your heart health diet. And this guy was giving me a mouthful, sitting in front of a, a, plate, a plate of mixed grill, chips and gravy covered in salt and pepper and, you know, a schooner. And it was that thing of, you just fix the service, mate. I'll, I'll look after the diet. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, Bless them, bless them. I'm That's sure you true. meet yeah. some characters every day. Yeah. Um, They're good for food. <laughs> How many people will get picked up by the Flying Doctor today? Well, we we see someone every two minutes, yep. and, and that largely covers everything from our retrieval emergency business through to our clinics. So the, the retrievals tend to be reasonably constant, but they can be seasonal. So, for example, you, know, you asked about, you know, what are some of the hazards? When it rains and the grass grows, in fact, that's a bigger problem. Mm-hmm. So we see more people coming off quad bikes and yeah. uh, hitting snags because they can't see. Running into yeah. bigger bulls. That's right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, around events, again, we see yeah. a lot of uh, intentional and unintentional trauma mm. arising from those. <laughs> but the main aim now is really to, to beef up our... Uh, primary care, and uh, so that you know people don't require a, you know a flight to to save their life. You know yeah. the trauma will always be trauma, and we try to work with communities to minimise that. But ultimately, the aim is to try to keep people healthier. Just one more question: um, What can everyday people do to help the flying doctor service operate on a on a day to day level? Look, two things. I think. They can always uh, you know, donate to us, and we need that. So it, that still requires 30% of our revenue. And the reason that that's important is because governments fund us to do important work. But as I've talked about today, the type of need and the type of work we want to do actually extends beyond that. So we want to be able to do more of our own volition and not wait for government to put their hand in their pocket. So that enables us to move much more quickly and, and address problems of the day. The second is really, I think, to maintain that awareness about life in, in rural Australia and, you know, get out and enjoy it and you know, maintain that interest and maintain that communication about why the bush is still really important to Australian life and lifestyle and what organisations like the Flying Doctors mean to those communities. So if you see us, you know, fundraising in Martin Place... Come up and have a chat. What is the best stretch of highway in Australia to land a PC24 on? Oh, it has to be the Nullarbor, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, yeah, look, I can give you the uh, phone a friend answer. <laughs> I think that the best bit of highway to land a PC24 is the one that's closest to the patient is probably yeah. how I'd answer that. But, but there are, to your point, Clancy, you know, there are uh, a number of uh, uh, stretches of road across the country that are and have been designed to be able to be used as strips in an emergency. And Mm. so occasionally as you drive across the country, you'll see those signs and Mm. that's what they're there for. So generally we've got outback strips and strips on property that, you know, are the the go-to places. But if there's a major trauma or an emergency, you know, on on a highway 
there are sections that are identified and then the local police and uh, emergency services will sort of swing into gear and light it up and uh, and we go there. Well, thanks for joining us today, uh, Greg Sam. That was an uh, informative yarn and, um, and, and, uh, and we hope that the listeners are, you know, tipping in. Yeah. It do- doesn't take a local drive to do that. In about a month's time, everyone's going to be doing their tax and hope they uh, hope they send a few bucks your way and don't send it all to the government to, to buy a new tank or something you know, <laughs> or another warship or or pay another government advisor two hundred and fifty thousand dollars to you know to do word documents and s- spreadsheets on how to make things more efficient good on you boys thank you so much thank you